welcome to the Challenging Histories podcast. Today, we have Kevin Eagles, Jacob Hogue, Nate Turner, Cooper Falls, and I'm your moderator, Jennifer Morris. And we're going to talk today about how mainstream histories got it wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Take it away, Jacob. <laughs> my name is Jacob Hogue. I'm a student at Northern Kentucky University, and my area of expertise is LGBT history in Cincinnati um, prior to the um, Stonewall riots of 1969. Um, when I started my research, I was struck by the overall absence of people we now refer to as LGBTQ in any form of history at all uh, prior to the 1969. Um, and I immediately just kept asking myself, you know, what about all those people? Um, you know, I wanted to highlight their stories as integral to the queer liberation movement because people just did not one day start waking up throwing bricks at police for no reason. Um, so, and I wanted to go back all the way to the very beginning. Um, and I was told by even credited historians that, you know, you're not going to find anything. There was not a queer subculture in Cincinnati, a conservative city like Cincinnati. Prior to the mid-20th century, um, I was told that, you know, the, the words that we used to define gay people, like gay, homosexual, uh, those words didn't exist. So I, I was kind of left with a vacuum of information that I needed to fill. Um, and unsurprisingly, um, due to the fact that gay people have existed since antiquity, uh, I was, after some painstaking research, able to find, uh, you know, examples of visibly queer people uh, living in Cincinnati. Um, you know, queer people have always had a way of carving out their their place in society. Uh, the entertainment industry was uh, probably the first place. Um, the very first famous minstrel um, uh, performer, uh, female impersonator, was a person by the name of Only Leon. Um, it was a visibly queer person that got run out of some of the cities that he performed in. The Cincinnati Enquirer reported on him time and time again. Despite being reviled by a lot of men where he traveled, he was probably one of the most famous entertainers in the country. Um, my research is really wanting to position Cincinnati in the grand scheme of the, the greater uh, gay rights movement. Um, and to do that, you kind of have to have a, uh, a working knowledge of, of the past in a way that, you know, if you take your own definitions and biases of today's culture and you put them uh, to you know, the culture of the 19th, 18th century, um, you know, you're going to come across some fallacies and you're not going to really grasp this. So this concept of challenging history uh, for LGBT people is extremely difficult because you have to kind of become an expert on a lot of different things. You have to look at coded language. You have to, you know, look at commonalities in old newspapers. Um, gay people were reported about. Um, there was a, um, a, a time in American history uh, where trans men um, from the 1850s uh, through the early 1900s were reported about by the Cincinnati Enquirer, the Cincinnati Post, a lot of Midwestern newspapers uh, with surprising acceptance. Um, Annie Hindle lived in Cincinnati. Um, she was from England. She was probably the most popular male impersonator of all time. Um, they grew a mustache. They uh, lived as a man. They had two legal wives at two different points in their lives. This was reported about with surprising acceptance. Uh, they didn't really know how to describe these people in a way that wasn't transphobic, a way that wasn't viewing them as an aberration. But this concept that people had no idea about homosexuality before the 1950s is just is wrong. And it feeds this illusion, this right wing populist illusion that we are somehow 
incipient in the grand scheme of the continent's history, that we are somehow not fundamentally a part of not just American culture, but of the human condition. Yeah, which is really pretty common when you talk about things like women's history or black history or all kinds of other things. Um, fascinating stuff. And, and talk a little bit, too, about um, some of the source material that you found, because I'm fascinated and, and doing women's history and doing some of the histories that I've done, um, gender and comparative women's history. It as we sort of talked, it's between the spaces. And so and the coded language really fascinates me. So t talk a little bit about words. So, yeah, the, the words are really, really fascinating. And and I mean, I'm probably going to need uh, prescription glasses because I've been looking at tiny little print <laughs> newspapers for so long. Um, th there was a strange way that queer people were spoken about for the longest time. Um, Natalie Barney was a famous Dayton native who eventually moved and opened up her own literary saloon in Paris. Uh, ended up dating Oscar Wilde's daughter. Um, she's got a great history, but they would refer to her as the notorious or nice. the um, the outrageous or the or the uh, scandalous. Those kinds of language uh, was how queer people were first um, uh, described. But um, other than that, you really had to you had to read between the lines. Um, I found one or two explicit um, examples of them ex speaking specifically about queer people. Um, like I was talking be before we started recording, there is a, a very fascinating case of, uh, of two Hebrew Union College students um, who went to the uh, Hebrew Union College. They fell in love. They found a book called A Marriage Below Zero by Alan Dale in which uh, a young, effeminate queer person meets a strong, strapping, masculine man who has a wife. They end up falling in love, and one of them tra tragically um, wastes away by a terrible disease. Um, the interesting part is that the, there's a crazy parallel between the lives of the students and the, and the, and the people in the, in, in the novel. This, this young, effeminate boy met this strong, strapping, masculine man the strong, strapping, masculine man started to waste away from for some disease, and they resolved to die together. The parallels were so striking that even in 1891, uh, I found an excerpt that specifically says, "You know, were the two unfortunate boys lovers?" Um, that spits in the face of many historical analysis about homosexuality and 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 what was viewed as. You know, I was told it was completely unheard of that people would have lost their minds to hear something like that. Well, it's written in print in 1891, and this is one source that we found. Um, I found, and actually in the same article, it goes on to say, um, uh, it goes on to talk about these maidens who have lived in, uh, they talked about several maidens who lived together and they pretty much said like, we've known this has happened between women. Is this, was this what's happening here? Um, so like I said, the, the first way that I looked at it was going the avenue of, of female impersonation, male impersonation. It seemed like that was probably the best route that I could get information. It just seemed like that's where queer people would naturally go towards. And I was right. And the interesting part is that at the same time that sexology was becoming a thing and linking things like femininity and homosexuality or, or male on male attraction and uh, masculinity, masculinity with you know lesbianism was the same time that male and female impersonation proliferated in vaudeville shows across the country. So that's the kind of challenging history thing that I find fascinating and, and, and nuanced about history is that things don't always add up in, in a nice pattern, a nice linear pattern, the way that we think that it does. Yeah, that's, uh, how, that's how history is, right? right? And, and that's why it's really important 
to challenge it because it's not a straight narrative. Right. Ha ha. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, that was bad. Um, we might want to edit that out. No, no, leave the puns. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting too that you bring that up. I was actually just at a seminar and one of the things that one of our um, instructors was talking to us about was a novel that was um, written. It was called Cecil Dream. Um, and it's also he, he called it proto queer literature, right, mm -hmm. from the 19th century. So it's there, right? Um, it's just about whether or not we uncover it and look for it. So, right. I mean, if you read Calamus by Walt Whitman prior to 1960, yeah. I mean, that was right. the gayest thing I've ever read. I just <laughs> stuff in my life, and it was explicitly gay. I mean, uh, you know, when Whitman came here, he talked about you know all the strapping young lads he encountered. You know, um, he was cruising. That's what he was doing. <laughs> it's that simple. He was. <laughs> um, but the idea that people had no access to information about homosexuality is, is wrong. Mm -hmm. Bayard Taylor wrote a book in 1860 called Jonathan and His Friend. There was a play called The Bostonians in 1860, I believe. Um, there were uh, John, John Addington Simons wrote a detailed history of uh, homosexuality by the early 1920s. You know, I found explicit uh, references to where they were selling all of these books at bookstores. I have in, in my research the amount that they cost, where you could buy them, and things like that. Um, uh, a marriage below zero, well, like I mentioned earlier, it was a, uh, it was, it was, it created a kind of a, a crisis in Cincinnati. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. How popular was that so, book, you know, at the time? So it's interesting. A marriage below zero, uh, like I said, it, it is a, it's a, it, it was read as a cautionary tale. A lot of these mm -hmm. books were allowed to exist for a while if they had a bad ending for the main character, right? right? right. So if they were viewed as promoting this kind of behavior, they were they were viewed as poisonous. And I literally, uh, Samuel Gruber owned a bookstore uh, on Fifth Street uh, that was rated for obscene literature. Uh, a, a, a random uh, Cincinnati Post contributor was walking past the, uh, his bookshop and he saw in the, in, the, in, the, in the mirror, A Marriage Below Zero. Mm -hmm. And then next to it was a book titled, um, I forget what it's called. It's called um, Nellie in the, in the in, it's a book about a prostitute in Chicago. It's, a, it's, a, it's about, a, as they call it, a gay girl in the city is, is, is the verbiage that they use. Um, and it essentially celebrates this prostitute. And she eventually, you know, uh, goes on to um, become super successful. And um, but anyway, the Cincinnati Post contributor walked past the bookstore, saw that these that these books were being, uh, you know, sold and was just aghast. He could not believe it. Uh, so he literally did what we would call entrapment today. He sent two little girls, 13 and 15 years old, respectively, um, into the store to procure these books and they sold them all of them. So he was arrested, indicted for, uh, for um, uh, distributing obscene literature. And this actually caused a uproar in Cincinnati. I mean, th there was investigations into every single bookstore and there was a lot back then. Um, I, I, I have a, I, I'm not going to pull out all of the, all the places that they researched, but, or that they investigated, but they found these kinds of material in almost all of them. Um, and well, prescriptive literature was a really big thing. And I, what that made me think of was The Awakening by Kate Chopin, mm -hmm. right? You can find yourself as a woman and you can enjoy love and you can enjoy sex, but you got to die in the end. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and, so. and that's actually why A Marriage Below Zero was not cited. It was cited in the original um, uh, investigation, but it was not used to indict or to convict them of it because it had a bad ending for the two characters. Had a narrative that they would support. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, they still considered it vile. Mm -hmm. and, and, when, and it's really interesting to read about it because they literally are comparing Samuel Gruber to the druggist down the street. And it says, 
if you don't know, because Gruber claimed that he didn't understand what was in the books, he didn't know. And they're claiming, they literally say, if a druggist puts poison in your mouth and claims he doesn't know, is he liable or not? They said, well, he is. And the way that they talked about literature back then was that it was literally poison. They called him a, a, a dealer of poison. They called him all of these terrible names. Um, but it, What year did all this happen? This was 1891. 1891, yeah. yeah. It sounds uh, very similar to today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cincinnati I mean, has a lovely history of yeah. that, right? Yes. Yeah. Think about the Maple Park exhibit. And that's what's so interesting yeah. to me. It's, it's so funny to me is that this, this city really, really does... Going all the way back then, you know, mm -hmm. how, how little we've caught, you know, the Mablethorpe decision happened 99 years after that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, and, you go back 50 years before that, and they were shutting down presses, oh, making yep. pro-abolitionist papers and stuff like that. So that's exactly always, what I was thinking, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Like, and it's so interesting, too, how there's always, but there's always been that undercurrent in Cincinnati. There was a very strong abolition movement right. in Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh, it was right? huge. There's, it, there, there's, it, it's, it's a city of a lot of tensions, mm -hmm. right? And, it, and by virtue of where it is and the fact that, you know, really traveled because of the river and right. the train stations and things like that. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a city of, uh, yeah, it's a city of anomalies and all kinds of Well, the river things, is an right? important part of the too. you know, the right. steamboat yeah. industry revolutionized Cincinnati. And I always talk about Cincinnati as being, you know, people view it as a secluded backwater city compared to, compared to everything else. But by the time Whitman and, uh, came here in 1850, it was the sixth most populous city in the country yeah. it, it was yeah. becoming yeah. the paris of america well frederick douglas was here what five times right yeah. exactly so you know it, you got to think about the fact that this is a person who was you know went everywhere right, right? like and and gave speeches everywhere and was right. in demand all over the country and he had enough time in his lifetime to come here five right. times right exactly and that's 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 pretty astounding and I, I i so i think when we look at the national queer uh movement and we look at the national queer history you know we see places in san francisco and new york as being highlighted as these you know safe havens for queer people. I mean, the Hamilton Lodgeball things happened in 1848, I believe. Um, that's insane. Most people don't, would, would, would be shocked to hear that. But people in Cincinnati heard about that. People yeah. in Cincinnati read about those things. People in Cincinnati visited New York and went to those balls and then came back here and I'm sure maybe had their own miniature versions of them. So this idea that Cincinnati is somehow, you know, separated from the national conversa conversation about gay history has always bothered me. Because the Steamboats yeah. people, I mean, the. Uh, the Marriage Below Zero came out in 1890, and it was in several bookstores in Cincinnati by 1891. This is a novel that was written in England, uh, you know, by a, an artist who was not very popular. Um, so that just shows you the fact that this information spreads a lot quicker than we think it does. Yeah. Um, and another, you know, the German connection of, for Cincinnati. You know, okay. you have uh, Carl uh, Maria Kurt Binney, you have um, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, all of the biggest pioneers of the international gay liberation movement came from Germany. So that, that, that we had a large German population here means likely that, gay, that Cincinnatians had access to information, literature about homosexuality before a lot of the other countries. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, going along with the theme of challenging history, just the conversation you guys were having when I came in, I mean, the notion of like, you know, men dressing as women and women dressing as men and that kind of thing, it goes so much further than just, you know, cross-dressing stuff like that. I mean, it is pervasive throughout history right. for a multitude of reasons. Why wouldn't it go into this? avenue as well you know exactly and i think that uh, like i was telling her earlier the, the current right wing rhetoric that is against homosexuality that's against transgender people that's against drag queens is this idea that it's a new concept that during the 60s divine came out or that these you know these drag queens came out of the woodworks and suddenly forced their way into society and 
the opposite happened is that you know drag queens female impersonators male impersonators were a central feature to american entertainment for hundreds of years before the 1960s i mean or at least 100 years uh minstrelsy started in the you know the 1840s 1850s um and it became really popular in the 1860s there's a really wonderful exhibit currently at the beinecke library at yale about that very thing um, and it's and I actually was really interested in I, you know, I felt really, you know, we, we were there for a while and um, it's it, it literally takes up like half of the floor of the exhibit and it's photographs and magazine articles and it's sort of all different walks of life and just the pervasiveness of it. Right. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, it's always been there. Well, and it's, it's, it's a complicated, challenging uh, historical concept because, you know, we want to tell this story as a queer person. As you know, look at these visibly queer human beings, and look at them making a you know a, a place for us. And while they did do that, you know, there's this primacy of race that comes in that you cannot ignore, right? So avenues that led to queer liberation or gay for white gay people, like female impersonation, like male impersonation, they led to dehumanizing stereotypes for African Americans that are pervasive to this day. So, you know, while only Leon and uh, Cincinnati native, the great Roselle, she was probably the most famous drag or drag performer in, in Cincinnati prior to the 19th, uh, late 19th century. Um, these people were doing some pretty terrible acts. They were doing they were putting on blackface. They were dehumanizing black people for, you know, for money. Um, there's the famous Zulu queen from Cincinnati, um, who is a guy named Jim, who liked to dress in pink rainbow uh, ribbons and and, uh, and Satin uh, liked to also uh, dress up as a uh, Zulu queen from Africa. Uh, they went and got a bunch of African-Americans to play uh, her tribesmen, and they went all across the city. They were very, very popular. Um, so to tell a queer, the queer history of Cincinnati or, or the country in a way that is fair, you know, we have to look at the confluence of, of race and gender and the ways that, you know, Certain things may have helped liberation for queer people that were white that subverted those rights for, for African-Americans. Yeah, I mean, as much else. as as much as people don't like it, history is intersectional, right? Like in, incredibly intersectional. Yeah. And, and the reason that I think that the gay story, the gay history has been so convoluted is because we want so badly to tell it as one single story. If yeah. you, and, and it's never been that. No. You know, if you look at Cincinnati gay bars, even the ninth, late 1970s, they were de facto segregated. Right. Um, even they the liberal were, ones, yeah. even the liberal ones. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that you know, keeping the primacy of race in our in our minds when we're talking about this is is really really important uh, for the gay movement, which has historically excluded African Americans or really anyone of color at all. And I want to use that to segue into Nate. I want you to talk a little bit about what you've researched with regard to the cholera epidemic mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, because that absolutely cannot have like neglected the idea of race. No, no, definitely not. Um, I guess I should probably introduce myself again. Uh, I'm Nate Turner. I'm a student here at NKU. Um, I also work for the Nancy and David Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center um, inside of the Cincinnati Museum Center. Um, but on top of, of my uh, interest in the Holocaust, I also uh, am super interested in medical history. Um, and I spent, um, I guess that was two semesters ago now, um, researching the cholera epidemics of the um, 1800s in Cincinnati. Um, so Cincinnati being a decently sized industrial city at the time, um, 
like other industrial cities at the time, struggled with cholera um, as clean drinking water was pretty hard to come by and um, people weren't exactly um, as uh, sanitary. The the poop got into the water pretty pretty uh, <laughs> pretty easily back then. Um, but yeah, uh, race definitely played a role in that because uh, a lot of um, immigrants and African Americans lived in the city center, um, where where a lot of the work was, just where where there was cheap housing. Um, but that those areas were the areas that were most impacted by cholera because that's where people were congregated. That's where not to Kevin will bleep it, bleep this out, but shit flows downhill. So and Cincinnati, the city center being downhill from everything, everything flows down. Um, so the, the water is <laughs> it's spread through water. So you know if any any poop that any infected poop that's gonna that's that's gonna get in the water is gonna is gonna kill people down there. Um, and the the rich white people that could afford to get out of the city got out of the city as soon as there were any. Um, any trace of, of cholera. Um, so yeah, race is, I mean, w with all uh, medical history, race is always um, a factor um, because the, the the rich can afford to either exit the situation or get treatment for the, the, the disease or, you know, any number of, you know, <laughs> sorry. No, Rambled it's, it's yeah, I mean, it, we, that that was that, that's you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Race has always race, particularly and particularly with people of color in the United States, have always really suffered mm -hmm. with regard to that when there's any kind of epidemic or illness, mm -hmm. because not only do they not have access to it, but there are a lot of fallacies about them mm -hmm. that they're different, yeah. right? Like they have different medical needs or different different kinds of bodies or manifestations. You know, the the fallacies of you know. Um, African Americans didn't feel pain as yeah, acutely, yeah, and yeah. and and all those kinds of things. So, I think that you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, and and where they were sort of congregated, mm -hmm. and you know, we know that you get the closer you get to Cincinnati, this the center of the city, you're in a, you're in a bowl, yeah. right? And it stops down there by the river, and so having yeah, like being that being your locus, I mean, mm -hmm. just how could you avoid it? And and talk a little bit about Mount Healthy too. Okay, so right? I'm, I think that's such a fascinating story that so, most Cincinnatians yeah, don't know. Mount Healthy. Well, the story goes that Mount Healthy is called Mount Healthy. What was it called before? It was called Mount something prior. I think Mount Liberty or something like that. Maybe um, could be completely wrong with that. But prior, uh, it was people started to call it Mount Healthy following the epidemics. Um, because it wasn't affected by cholera at all, because it was uphill from everything. Because for some reason they had good plumbing, or you know any number of reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it, it got its namesake because of cholera. And I would, I would, I, I get, I, I haven't found the kind. This is kind of where my research fell off, to be honest, because I haven't found the source that could tell me that. This is exactly like rich people flood the city to Mount Healthy. And I think I know that's probably what happens just because like people, people talk, people, you know, go back and forth. All the rich people know each other. Oh, we, we know that Mount Healthy is healthy. So let's let's get out of get out right. of Dodge. There's um, actually a book called The Cincinnati's West End. Okay. Um, yeah. 
by I forget who it's by, but it's a brilliant book. It actually talks about that. Does it? Yeah. Uh, that, that's always been the case in Cincinnati. Like, yeah. you know, poor cobbles when it got in the summer and smelled horrible, yeah. and a horrible place to live. They would just go up to the hills, yeah. go up to the yeah. yeah, exactly. And I believe, and I, I believe yeah. they actually used to call the West End uh, something swamp or something like that. Am okay. I right about that? I um, not from here. So <laughs> even yeah, in modern yeah, times, I, that's an apt name for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, and it is interesting too, because, you know, even how Cincinnati was settled, right? Like over the Rhine, right. Mm-hmm. was where the Germans first settled. And then once they had the, you know, like the, the, the cable car, what, what is that? Am I saying the right name? The, what is it? Um, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, like yeah. The, the ones that they had them in Cincinnati, they had them in Pittsburgh, right? Mm-hmm. Once they once they sort of had that and they had the ability to take things up the hills, then everybody moved up to Mount Adams, right? right? And so you have sort of an exodus of rich people out of the city mm-hmm. and then up to, you know, and, and, you know, just to clarify for people who aren't from Cincinnati, we have seven hills and mm-hmm. we have Mount Adams and Mount Lookout and Mount Healthy and, you know, and, and all those kinds of things. But it's it's fascinating how once the technology was available and they could actually do that, like that's where people move. I mean, even the neighborhood I live in, um, it it was it was actually settled that way because it was close to the Erie Canal mm-hmm. and it was away from all the manufacturing and it didn't smell bad. Yeah. So everybody everybody rode their you know horses or took their carriages to, down yeah. to where the work and live right the Procter and Gamble plant is right now mm-hmm. right, but they. They rode up to my neighborhood because it was nice and clean and pristine and, yeah. you know, beautiful wide streets. And, you know, yeah, I mean, just thinking about that and thinking about, you know, the whole Mount Healthy thing, kind of the infrastructure has always gone against Native or not Native, well, Native Americans, too, but African-Americans, yeah. especially. Yeah. So it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I remember when they built like 75, 562, all the highways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much unanimously were built through, you know. Or black communities. Well, you know right, I mean? through yep. the West End neighborhood. Exactly. Right? I mean, it was yeah. a conscious yeah. decision. I mean, it happened in literally every U.S. city. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 94 in Detroit, one yeah. through oh, the black yeah. community. And, and just so we know that history actually is meaningful in the present day, um, Pete Buttigieg is actually talking about that right now. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, in that, like, if a, if a, if some, something like that, if an infra, some kind of infrastructure destroyed your neighborhood there needs to be a reckoning of that right. and i and you know i mean boy is that long overdue right. considering these well, yeah. highway systems that were well, built in the 1950s in but yeah, yeah. Especially especially cincinnati, cincinnati is, is really it's probably one of the right? worst cities in the country in terms of yeah. its mm-hmm. gentrification and, and it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's displacement of people of color mm-hmm. and and going back to the, the west end you know when black people came from the south and the great migration and, and eventually settled there um after war one they you know it wasn't just poor blacks it was middle class blacks. It was the, that was really so. You know the deci- the decimation of 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 those communities was a decimation of of successful successful black, black, black yes yeah, exactly of, of capital of, of taking, capital of taking capital exactly exactly yeah. and, and 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 you see that you know that when that when that highway system went in and actually devastated those communities it was that when black people were finally starting to make it out of right. you know the trenches mm-hmm. uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah. And Cincinnati is such a weird microcosm of so many of those things. I know. Yeah. Right? So many other examples throughout the country. Yeah. Just like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and now we're going to use that as a segue to bring Kevin into the conversation. <laughs> no, right. Um, because, you know, you have a, you have different experience, right? Um, right. Yeah. So um, I'm Kevin Eagles. I'm an adjunct professor here at, uh, at KU and continuing, uh, or maybe one more year, a grad student. Um, yeah, so for, for me, as a Vietnamese American, right, um, so I'm not from, like Nate, I'm not from Cincinnati either. Um, so a lot of the 
the background that the, that the others have, I don't have, right? Mm -hmm. But um, historically, I can say that, you know, looking into uh, the city, right? Cincinnati, um, as far as with Asians is involved, um, it's been, the problem has been um, exoticizing and fetishizing um, the Asian community, right? So, for instance, like one of the first cases would be uh, Fanny Trollope in 1827. Um, she decided to open a business here with her family, and it was called Trollope's Bazaar. And she had um, a building built and with an oriental flair, I guess you would say, right? It was partially Turkish and partially Chinese. Um, and then they would sell, um, depending on your read of the book, um, her husband bought a bunch of tchotchkes for her on the cheap, um, which she may or may not have known about. And they were all of another, like, you know, exotic, fetishized Asian products. Um, and because of that, no one, no one wanted them, so they, they shut it down. Um, and shortly thereafter, they destroyed the building, right, because they said that it was an affront to the Cincinnati landscape, right? So that was the first case, really, that as far as I have been able to find in Cincinnati, um, of Asian culture coming into Cincinnati's worldview, right? Um, the second one was another interesting one, too, and that was in the 1880s, for about 30 years in Cincinnati, there were several businesses in town that you could hire um, a wedding planner to give you a Japanese wedding. <laughs> and it would have, you could hire women who would appear, appear as geisha and be in yellow face. Huh. Yeah. And wow. it, was, it was really um, a cottage industry for 30 years. Wow. Um, wow. And it was really, really popular in that people would have these weddings, the bigger the better, and you would, hire, you would invite the general public to see. right? Mm -hmm. A glimpse into Japan, right here in and what year was that? That was from the eighteen eighties to nineteen ten. That's yeah. that's interesting because you know that's sort of around the same time that that same kind of fascination with Japan is happening in Europe, and you mm -hmm. see it through right. the impressionists, right. right? So I think that that's it's it's a fascinating thing that and and no you know like I was Van Gogh painted stuff that was definitely in the Japanese sort of style, yeah. but never went to Japan. Right. So it's it's. It's sort of, and that's, and we got to think about too, like that's really when Japan started to open back up to the West, right? right, right. So all of a sudden, right, like there's something new to consume. Right. 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 Now, I, I believe I found, uh, I was looking at uh, dime museums that they only lasted in Cincinnati for like two years from, I believe, 18, two years in the late 1800s, uh, in the late 1890s. And they had a lot of similar things like that. You know, you could go and see an authentic, Native American tribe. Literally, they would have them living in this in, enclosed environment. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't that roughly the same time the whole Egyptian craze came out too? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. you would walk in and you could you could walk in these dime museums. They were Cole and Middleton's dime museum. And you would walk in and you would see a menagerie of tigers and emaciated bears. But then in a different section, you could walk around and see Egyptians living, you know, as if they were living back in the, you know, uh, uh, in the day, you, you could find uh, Japanese Americans uh, living or living right. as if they were, you know. Um, Same things uh, happening in Europe too, right? Because they're bringing people from the colonies and they're having these big expositions, right. so you human can see. Zoos and everything else. Yeah, yes. right. I mean, basically, they were human zoos, right? Yeah. Like that's where you get the hot Todd Venus and all those kinds of things, right? Yeah. Like they they very very much like you know they put these people on display and fetishize them. And yeah, right. It's right. it's it's really kind of horrifying, so, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing too, right? As a historian. 
when you're looking into this type of thing, right? The first thing you run into is the spectacle of it, right? Yeah. Right. Where it's like, that's okay. So then, so if we take a, a step back and, and look at the Asian experience in the, the entire country, right? Um, we can talk about, you know, the first, the first Asians that we've found out now maybe is the Manila men of the late, late 18th century, right? And those were Filipinos working out of Louisiana um, with the French, right? And they were the first ones there. Um, but, you know, in the fall, I'm going to be teaching a course on the Vietnam War. So you're trying to find a substantive start for when Asians came and what they were able to do, right? So if you look back for Vietnam War, where I was born, uh, the first mention of a Vietnamese person entering America is kind of documented, but kind of not. And the, it was a, a, China, a, a Vietnamese uh, diplomat at the time they were a province of China. And he came, um, and his name was Louis Van, uh, Louis Van, and he came for a year. And we know that he came for a year, and they said that we have to quarantine you for a year, or you can talk to the president. And then at the end wow. of the quarantine, they said that your papers are now expired. You can go back home. Wow. Wow. Right. So then that's, so that's like the fact. You can find out that sort of kind of stuff, right? But you get, but not the documents, but through letters, right? Mm -hmm. But then you look at the time and then you try to find other sources. And then um, there are a couple of sources that say that he came um, either during um, Lincoln's presidency, right? At some point, there's a couple various points, or years later um, with Ulysses S. Grant, mm. right? So we don't even know when he was there. We haven't kept any records, right? Fast yeah. forward to the Vietnam War, same thing with Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh, we know that he came um, in the early 19th, early 20th century, right, before World War One, And some sources say that he came and he was a pastry chef in Boston, and the other ones will say that he came to be a, a dishwasher in New York City. Right. Yeah, his then, his history is fascinating because it is not documented. Right. Um, there are there are places where we know Ho Chi Minh was specifically, right. but like well, there's the there's the, there's spans of his life where well, the he's French off the grid, him, man. As a as a, <laughs> uh, as a, uh, a member of a French colony right in Indochina, uh, he he learned from the get go to use surnames or to use. Um, Aliases all the time. Yeah. So we have so many aliases that we know he's used at least yeah. five. And he right. traveled everywhere. Right. He really right. did. He was all over Europe and the Soviet Union. He was in the United States. And I don't think people have that concept of him, right? He really becomes encapsulated with the Vietnam War. And that's really all anybody wants to know about mm -hmm. him. Um, and just so you know, if you want to show this to your students, there's a mm -hmm. really wonderful episode of Young Indiana Jones. It was a television series <laughs> that was made in the 90s. Oh, cool. And Ho Chi Minh shows up because he was actually there, right? Like mm. He was at the Paris Peace Conference. <laughs> right, and he shows yeah. up there, right? <laughs> right? So there's, and there's, it's a really great episode because they get a lot of the history right. Right. And so my students are fascinated by this because it's, it's a piece of 1990s popular culture um, right. and stuff that they just didn't even have any idea about, right? 
Um, right. Lawrence of Arabia, they have they have no idea. Yeah. Like in Lawrence right. Arabia is there, right? Yeah. Um, and and they're kind of like, wow, this is really. I love this episode. I use it all the time to teach, right? Because it's right. it brings together so many threads. But right. it but it's fascinating because he actually really was there. Like it's yeah. documented that he was there. So yeah, um, and going over trying to finalize all the curricula and everything for the class in the fall. Like the challenging thing now is is like, well, when everyone asks me like. You're going to do a course on the Vietnam War. When do you start? Who do you start with? Right. right. And um, one of the most obvious answers, is, of course, Ho Chi Minh, right? Because uh, as far as like telling the story of the Vietnam War, um, America's first snubbing of Ho Chi Minh, right at the at Versailles, um, I think was really telling. Absolutely. Right? And, it, yeah. and it really um, because because he he. I mean, and, and it's one of the things that my students and I talk about, too. It's like, well, if, you're, if you go to the most one of the most powerful nations in the entire world and they don't care what you have to say. Right. And when, right. when you think about it in the context of European history at the time, when you're talking about self-determination and you're talking about, you know, like we have we have a common culture, we have a common language, you know, we have a common history. We should be self-determining. We should be a nation. And the United States was really behind that, right? right. And that's the whole idea of European nationalism. Um, and people in the colonial regions were clamoring for that kind of recognition. And when Ho Chi Minh didn't get support for that, he went he went where he got support. Yeah. Right. Um, and we right. talk about that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's you know it's one of those weird historical moments. So. Yeah. So that's that's yeah where I'm at right now because that's the thing like when you're talking about any of these challenging histories that we've talked about so far, right? It's like the more and more research you do, right, you will come to realize that the public thread of that history is so vanilla and so, um, you know, just G-rated American moralism, yes. right? And so and, believed by everyone, right? right? <laughs> right? Everyone buys it. And then, and then you, you every every time you turn a corner, it's you know, it's something that's just going to blow your mind, right? And, and then the, how how often are you allowed to blow a college student in a course of 14 <laughs> weeks, right? Right. right. <laughs> well, well, but I think that's an important, you know, that's one of the things that's important about being a historian. And one of the things that I've started to do lately, and I kind of find it fun, and the students are kind of engaged with it, right, is when they're, they're learning something like that, it kind of blows their mind. And I mm-hmm. say, look, you know, you got to keep remembering all the time that, Historians have a code of ethics, and we do not put things out for public consumption about the past unless we can prove it. And if there's a hole, we say there's a hole, right? If there's a big gap, we have to say it, and Ho Chi Minh's life has gaps, right? So we have to tell our students the truth about that. Right. And that's that's comforting in a way, right? Yeah. To know that we are holding ourselves to these standards as historians, and we're not there to... At, you know, we're not pandering something to, something to them. You know, we're going to show them this document or that right. document or that source or, or whatever. So I think mm-hmm. that helps a lot with challenging histories. It it helps to cement them as part of the meta narrative, and it helps to bring them. You know, like it, right. it does all those good things. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, and I was thinking too about like public history in terms of like interpretation for the public, which is always challenging, Ooh, right? Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. It's especially fun when it's in a, in a community that is very anti kind of the mission that you're going for. You know, not Absolutely, to, yeah. Yeah, 
Cincinnati's a pretty hotbed. There's very niche, you know, left wing, very niche right wing, and everybody has their own kind of agendas and have their own construed narratives that they really don't want to go against. So it's always fun presenting vastly new evidence and new uh, perspectives from other sides of history. You know, there's no great, comfortable, easy. Mm-mm. Do you have a, a problem with, you know, because a lot of public history is about making it consumable to the yeah. public. How do you do that? But while, while remaining true to the story, because I, I always say, you know, if you have a complicated, if you have a really simple answer for a complicated question, probably you're probably missing something. So explain. Exactly. And that's like, that's especially now in you know modernity, people like to take very complex ideas and concepts and boil it down to just like a nice little sentence that they yeah. can just simplify it and take it away and be comfortable with it. That's kind of the goal of public history is that, you know, presented in a quick, easy, comfortable way, but it's also not, you know, you have to present it in somewhat of an academic way, still true to the history. You know, that's, again, that's when you get bump into different ideas and ideologies and stuff, but mm-hmm. that's, I was told that you're supposed to write for like a fifth grade or sixth grade reading yeah. level, like yeah. doing yeah. public history. I yeah. think that's, that's BS. That's well, not, that should not be presented. So in my experience working at the Holocaust Museum, the, I think the goal is to draw people in mm. at the beginning. So then like at the beginning, you have these blips, you have the, 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 the 150 word, you know, yep. blips that it's oversimplification, draw them in. And then from there, once, once they're engaged, once they, once they want to know more, that's when you give them all of it. You know I mean, in I mean? terms of public engagement, especially yeah. now, like for youth, I mean, yeah. say what you will, the attention spans are much shorter than they were probably yeah. 10, 15, 20 years ago. So yeah, it is important for like younger students and younger audience members to be able to catch on quick, yeah. you know, and be able to present all your ideas quickly. Yeah. But again, it's typically the people that we are doing this for the most are the ones who are going to go out of their way to, you know, yeah. develop Define more it, and right. yeah, dig deeper yeah. anyway. So, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and, you know, the, the, the history of the Holocaust is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And there's no way to make people comfortable with that. And nor should we, you know, I, I think is, that that's, that's, and, yeah. and, you know, talk about challenging histories, right? Like as historians, one of the challenges we constantly face is, you know, you have to reckon with the fact that the, the past is not, it's not clean cut. It's really right. messy. If history makes you feel good, it's probably, at it's least probably, American history, if, yeah. if it makes you feel good I mean, look, all there, the time. There are, extra- oh. right, and, yeah. and like extraordinarily wonderful people in sure. history who have done astounding things, right? And um, under horrible circumstances, right? right? So I think that, that, but I think that the problem is, is that like, those are not too frequent in terms of stories, right? Like things take a long time and, right. and fights take generations or, you know, t- change takes generations because, you know, people don't like change. Humans don't like change, right? right. Change is glacial. So we, you know, we, it's, it's incumbent upon us to sort of challenge people and push them and make them think about things. Well, I, th- I think that the story of America is the story of people on the margins of society making room for everybody else. And if you look at it, it's always been minority populations who have held our feet to the fire and made us say, you know, mm-hmm. you're not living up to your creed of democracy. Yep. And, you know, we live in a country where a majority of the people that live in here, live here, think that this democracy is what, a couple hundred years old? Right. I mean, it, when 
Black people didn't have the right to vote in the country until when? I mean, literally. Women didn't have the right rights. to vote until 1920? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> More than 50% of the exactly. population couldn't vote. credit card without the student exactly. husband up until the 70s. Right, so, right, exactly. right. right. So we, right. Believe, we believe in these ideas of democracy right. that are diametrically opposed to the reality. So, oh, historians, so, we're so pesky right. with our truth. Right. <laughs> so uh, so uh, an objective analysis of history often means fighting against people's very personal identity yeah. as an American citizen who, Absolutely. you know, yeah. is, is, is this great, has lived in this great democracy, uh, 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 in this pinnacle of civilization, as they, as they would like to say. Absolutely. Well, to yeah. tie that into the Holocaust, that was 80 years ago. And even now, just 80 years later, we have people that are almost pro oh, the yeah. same ideologies yep. living in this country. They literally are pro. I mean, yeah, if, I you, mean if, you look at yeah. the, if you look at the white nationalist movement, the KKK they're movement, pretty open with the it, Richard yeah. Spencers, they're codifying their language, yeah. but only barely. And they're putting on suits. They're taking off their robes and they're putting on, you know, these suits. They're blending in society. They're actually infiltrating governments again. They're infiltrating police departments again. Um, you know, and then the United States government in the last 20, 30 years has really fallen off. You know, in the 90s, if you attacked, if you were a white nationalist group and you went and attacked Jewish people at a, at a rally somewhere, you're, you were getting shut down. I mean, they, they, the ATF would come in, the FBI would come in and they would root you out. Nowadays, you're having, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of these white nationalists, sometimes militia groups that are spreading their nonsense online. They're advocating for hate and they're voting for president now. Yeah, you should see our, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> you should see our uh, binder of Nazis at the Holocaust Museum. Wow. Oh my <laughs> literally have to have a binder full of all of the, the active Nazis in the area at my desk. Wow. Well, right. and that's that really is, and that's what I was I was going to mention was that you know it is like when you're trying to do a, a collegiate level historiography of a subject, right? You're taught, we are all taught that we have to be objective, right? Unfortunately, you have these Nazis who have weaponized our own objectivity against us. Right. Right? Great point. Because right. they have. They have like so that's what you're saying, like right, yeah. like they you have a list of known terrorists yeah. who may come to do harm to the building, to the people yeah. visiting, to the people working there, yeah. right? They have the same list, right? And that is objective words that we use to bring us together to let them know that as soon as you hear that word, you can turn off. Right? Like, oh, this person said this word, you're woke. I don't have to listen to anymore right 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 and I, and going back to um uh cooper right as a public historian he is in a city that i won't mention um yeah, but I that is that the, the very that is the very problem right and i've been on several occasions um with professor hackett doing tours and every time i say look this town is surrounded by sunset towns so if we get out and you feel uncomfortable let me know that we have to leave and then we'll leave immediately. Right. And. Okay. First and foremost, define a sunset town because I'm sure there are people <laughs> oh, right. who won't know what that is. So on the East end of Cincinnati, when you're heading into. Um, the East end of Cincinnati. Heading out of, this, heading out right. of town. Right. right. A sunset city is a, 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 a municipality where African-Americans are legally not allowed to be outside after sunset. Yeah, and it's all—it's also the implied threat. Even if there's yeah. no right. legality around it, it's you right. better be inside by sundown. Right, right, right. Because right. if you're out, you're fair game. Right. right. Yeah. So we've—I've—I've 
I've been on two tours with with um with African American faculty here in NKU, and so one of the one of them, right? So statistically, you know, it's too small of a sample size, right? But it is fifty percent of the tours that we've given. We had an African American walk seventy five feet, and immediately everyone in the town did a body snatchers thing facing towards him, and he turned around and said, went right back to his car, and we left. Because yeah, they, I mean, they're the intent. It's not and the an exaggeration, looks. unfortunately. Right, yeah. Yeah. right. And and I grew up out there, uh, so oh, yeah. Right. I trust me. I understand. When we had yeah. a, a black student come to the school, it was a, talked about for extremely well, you know, long yeah. amount of time. And right. Um, well, I think that's the other thing about this portion of Ohio, also, right? Like while it was a very, it, there was a very thriving abolition movement here. There was just as much sympathy or what was happening below the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that history perpetuates till to today in Ohio. Yeah, there was a lot of Confederate yeah. soldiers that from Cincinnati that, that went and fought their own brothers and sisters right. and own cousins yeah. toward the institution of slavery. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, you know, and it's true of Southern Indiana, it's true of Southern Illinois, right? It's, that's just something that's that's been part of this culture, so. I gotta take off this. Oh. Awesome. Yeah, that was a good time. Nice yeah. to meet you, man. Take care. That was a really good Awesome. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. That was fun. Yeah. Nice to meet you finally as well. Nice to meet yeah. you too. We guys want to call it through then? Sure. We can wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. It's okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that, was, that was kind of like he just dropped off a sign uh, saying okay. that he had to leave early. He's got an appointment at, at uh, three. Cool. I mean, if, you, if we can keep going if you guys want, I didn't, I didn't get a really chance to. Uh, yeah, do you want to do like a wrap up thing or something? Yeah, too. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, I'm still recording, so we're uh, we can go back and splice it out. Um. Yeah. Wrap up. Well, I think that the you know I think that the common thread through all of these you know completely different in some ways topics is that you know someone has served to gain from the way that these histories have, that have been taught. Mm -hmm. yes. And if you look at who serves, to, you know, who's, who's gained from this, it's the people who are making the laws. It's the people, it's this, you know, it's rich white men who have consolidated power in this country since it was established. And, you know, by positioning history in that way, um, they have, you know, weaponized history against us, against our perspective uh, progress. So I, I think that objective history, while it is extremely difficult to, to actually find, you know, we have to strive towards that, or we will continue to uh, make the sense of, you know, the past. Yeah, and I, and I, as coming from my perspective, and having been a practitioner for longer than I care to, to reveal, um, it, it, I, I guess that I think that there was a turn in history where we actually, as practitioners, realized that. Um, it's not about objectivity necessarily, but it's about um, admitting what we know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's happening, I think, also in addition to, to, to history being weaponized, is that um, we are very careful to talk about the facts, right? What's real, right? There's a realness to this, right? There are real human experiences that we cannot discount just because we may not like them or they don't necessarily support our agenda. And I think that probably the ray of hope in all of this and the really good news to all of this is, is that there are still many, many people out there who are very bravely 
you know, researching and writing and speaking about these stories. And it's really important for us as practitioners to continue to, you know, raise up these challenging histories. You know, as, as I just heard a speaker say this week, this past week, um, you know, we, all we have is hope. So, and we can't stop. So I, I say that to all the historians. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, looking at history as it actually was versus how it's been sold to us, you know, shows us that progress isn't this linear phenomena that is inexorably going to. I don't believe in progress. (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that's a, that's a a 19th century fallacy. Right. The American notion that we've always inexorably attained, you know, progress in, in, in equality, you know, that, that forces us to not be as vigilant as we should be. Yeah. And we see that now with Roe v. Wade, with, you know, you know, all of the rights that are going to be threatened with this new Supreme Court. Um, the implications of this are going to last decades. Absolutely. I mean, and it's terrifying. So at this point, you know, we need to become... Um, Get angry, folks. Yeah, radicalized in a sense, and, 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 and really, and that's just the fact of the matter. I mean, the, we, we live in a government where or we're under a government that has probably seen this coming for 25 years. Longer than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Way yeah. I mean, so. I mean, the trajectory of this all began, you know, soon after Barry Goldwater right, ran yep. for president. Right. And, right. and I think that, you know, it's what, what's, what's fascinating to me as a historian about it is what's the end game? Right. Right. What's the end game? Because. You know, like, sure, like things are, we, our, our, our systems have been tilted in favor of, you know, a certain political ideology, mm-hmm. if we want to put it in those, those terms. And, um, you know, that's not really what the Constitution actually says. And I often wonder how many of these people have actually even read the Constitution. Yeah. Not a really yeah. long document. Nope. And it's also not really very complicated. Not so, on the backpack. <laughs> yeah, read, read the Constitution yeah. and find out what your rights actually are. Oh, yeah. um, because, you know, as, as many people, and I, and I think so much of the, the people who are Holocaust survivors who yeah. will say it over and over again, they will come for you. But you yeah. may think you're safe, but yeah. they will come for you. Yeah, it always starts with the the, the lowest on the totem pole, too. Yeah. And that's that's what concerns me with the current uh, um, demonization of trans people, too. Right. You know, yeah. they'll yeah. come. They're they're coming for you. Right. And yeah. they'll come for the next person, too. Exactly. And, you know, and if, if the average American had a working knowledge of how this isn't a new phenomenon that trans people have always lived here, that gay people have always lived here, that queer people have always lived here. Um, I don't think that they would be so quick to demonize them as this nation phenomenon uh, yeah. on the continent's history. So, you know, again, you know, visibility is so unbelievably important mm-hmm. uh, for, for any minority. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and it, it's, it makes me think about, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm actually pretty well versed in the constitution, oddly enough, for, <laughs> you know, being trained as a European historian, but the 14th amendment, right? All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Um, no state shall make or enforce any laws which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That's the 14th Amendment. Probably the most important amendment in the last Yeah, and, and, and these are the things that, you know, if you haven't read it, read it. Right. right? And if you don't know what it means, and if you ha- don't know what it means historically, 
you should probably understand that because right. um, this is kind of the amendment where all of our rights. Yeah. Right. Every, every social movement in the country yeah. is right. used and, that, you know, any successful one. And, and property, you know, when they wrote it, property was John Locke's definition of property, right. which is not about what you own, but about who you are. Mm -hmm. right? right. And, and, and allowing you to exist as an individual. The whole my rights end and yours begin when my fist hits your nose. So um, it's it's really important to understand that because, you know, like and, and yes, the, like the idea of the right to individual privacy has been something that's been bandied about since the Constitution was written. Right. But um, it's never in the history of the United States have we seen it disappear so quickly as right. it has within the last week. Right. Yeah. And, so, and if you don't have privacy over your own body. Then what right. do you have? And that was the essential argument in Roe v. Wade. Right. And that's what property means to John right. Locke. Right? right. Like you have you have bodily and intellectual Ages. autonomy. Yes. yes. Right. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how as how historians deal with this moving forward. I haven't really met any historians who are real happy about all of this right. um, because, you know, they know the history of the United States on some right. level and, and they're concerned about about it. But well, you know, the, the, I think that the problem that we have to mount now is that there are elements of the government right that have over the last several decades if not since the beginning of the country right have deified the constitution yeah and not only have they deified it but they've said that it is almost shakespearean in quality right like right. You know, don't worry about it it's too hard to understand yeah let me tell you what it means i'm right. quite sure right. that's very hard to understand yeah <laughs> you know, like right. that's pretty easy it's to understand. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> Someone said it was the, they were. I was watching an NPR the other day, and it was a, an attorney general who said he that he interprets the Constitution as if God Himself wrote it. I mean, right. literally. And right. then these were men who wrote this Constitution that, what owned slaves that, you know, did not believe in rights for women. They did not even. Right. They did right. not even know if they would have. They didn't believe in rights for non-property. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know. So this right. idea of this country has. That's been promulgated throughout American history is is, yeah. is a lie. Well, and then we then we layer manifest destiny on top right. of that, right? <laughs> and and all those other kinds of things. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was really interesting because when when we when I have been thinking about the idea of imperialism, and as it unfolded in Europe, I mean, it was a very you know it was a very sort of pragmatic, you know, going out and taking resources for the industrialization of Europe, right? right. So they took human resources and natural resources. Um, and, you know, but we don't use that terminology when we talk about the United States. Right. But the United States, everything the United States did was exactly the same. It right. was the exact same endeavor exactly. um, by taking over contiguous land. Right. So right. it's right. so we need to, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's you know, historians. We can reframe that conversation. Right? right. We can really reframe that conversation. And and, and you know, like there's possibilities in that. Right. right. There's a lot of possibilities in that. And, you know. And and the beautiful possibility in that is is that it makes history far more inclusive, right? Right, um, far more inclusive because, you know, I mean, if you look at you know, for example, if you look at England, right, like the UK, there are a bunch of statues all along the Thames of these really famous like you know colonizers, and they took them down because mm -hmm. people were like, this is gross, this is right. a terrible part of our history, and right. they need to be recontextualized, and we need to talk about this in a different right. way, right? And France is doing the same thing. Um, and these are the two biggest empires of the 19th century. So, you know, if if they're reckoning with their history in that way and they're taking a new look at it, there's absolutely room for us to do right. the same. 
And I believe that so. most of the people that have, you know, are complaining about Confederate statues being taken down across the country, they've probably never read a history book in their lives. They've never visited a museum where these things could right. be actually put. Oh, my favorite thing <laughs> is who puts up statues to losers? Right, exactly. And my answer is it was all the women's societies, right? And mm -hmm. if you read the history of the <laughs> South, um, women were terribly worried about their men feeling emasculated after right. the war. And so they created societies and they the raised daughters, money. The Daughters of Confederacy was, uh, was what, what the, And they were, yeah. they were everywhere, right? Yeah. They were local, they were statewide, yeah. and they, they were very invested in making sure that the men did not feel bad about themselves after the war. So talk about like your gender well, history right. and everything else, right? Well, and, 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 a part of that was, and, and a part of that was a complete rewrite of the, um, of the Civil War yeah. and, and the yeah. causes of it. I forget yeah. the woman's name. I believe it was... Rutherford, Mary Rutherford, maybe was yeah. her name. She uh, created the Rutherford Committee, and they, it was pretty much a giant lobbying campaign to completely rewrite the causes of the Civil War, to mm -hmm. conflate indentured servants with slaves, uh, and all these suggest all these suggestions that that they put forward. You can still see today. Absolutely. I saw. I remember a Venn diagram between uh, indentured servants and white indentured servants and and, and black slaves. Um, and that's exactly what the Rutherford Committee suggested that they do yeah. for the sole purpose of obscuring, uh, obs sorry, obs I'm not saying the word right. Obscuring. 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 Yeah. Obscuring the actual nature uh, of, of, of the war. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, you know, reframing it. And that's why I think, you know, like while while historians, I think that too, like, you know, we we need to be very clear about the fact that, you know, this is work about which we are passionate. Right. We love this work and we want to do it well and we want to do it right. And we want to make it a, a, something that we can be proud of, um, that we that we you know, like you can say this is something that we produce, that it was a very good quality. Mm -hmm. Right. It was the best quality we could produce. And so, you know, I, I think that that for me is the issue. Right. Like and, it, and if we have this opportunity right now to, to recast history, I mean, that's really kind of great. Yeah. Right. So. And if we don't do it, um, I'm not going to. Get done, so so this is this has been a great conversation. Mm -hmm.